so what I think is, and, and I'll do my best to explain this to you um, throughout the rest of our time tonight, is that if we go back to the first page and we said there are three ways to interpret these terms, they describe offices, functions, or spiritual gifts, we know that the word apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, and priest, as we'll see in a little while, those terms did not describe offices because the only two offices were elder, overseer, and deacon. Okay, So we know that it's not number one. Personally, I think the best explanation is that the majority of them fall under number three. They're spiritual gifts that are given to people to exercise, some of whom are going to occupy the offices that officially exist, and some of whom are going to be normal church folk. And they also have the gifts. And we read in 1 Corinthians and we read in um, Ephesians and we read throughout Paul's letters that everybody is supposed to be exercising their spiritual gifts for the benefit and the building up of the church. I mean, just common sense to me, if you've been around church or been leaning into Christian life for a while, mm-hmm. is that um, that makes the most sense anyway, right? Because if you're gonna if you're gonna be prophesying over something, that is a spiritually given to you gift. Mm-hmm. Or if you just have the passion for evangelism and your heart is constantly thinking about the lost soul so much so that you are out on the streets and con- it's just there and you just got to do it. That is the Holy Spirit leading that through you. Or you you are just the teacher and you're able to articulate the word in such a way that people understand it. Like I feel like Daniel was born with that spiritual gift. That's something I've had to try and develop over time and that's not something I was given, but you had that. Like from the very first time when we started dating, I could see that through you. And that's a spiritual gift that you were given. And so all of these things, like it makes the most sense that that would be spiritual gift. Yeah, I agree. And I think I can show you from the passages that we've read that um, these are best interpreted and defined as spiritual gifts. Now, not elder, okay? Nobody has the spiritual gift of eldership. It doesn't exist because it's an office. It's not a gift. Nobody has the spiritual gift of deaconship, okay? Um, Now, the word deacon literally means servant, helper, minister, um, uh, something along those lines. And there is a helps gift, but the word that's used is not deacon. So anyway, um, yeah, these I think you can show our spiritual gifts from the verses just that we've shown already. So let's start back again with 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. Um, This is a long passage, so we're not going to take a lot of time to go through it. But what I want to point out is this. Um, in, uh, later in verse 28, Paul specifically starts talking about apostles, prophets, teachers. Um, he goes on to talk about people with gifts of helping and healing and all these different things. Okay. So what's important to recognize here is that he talks and uses these words that our 21st century mind says, oh, those are offices. That's a, that's a, that's a title that somebody has. They are an apostle because they have the office of apostle or they are an evangelist because somebody hired them to be an evangelist, or whatever the case may be, right? That's not Paul's, that's not the context here, okay? If we go back up, this is verse number one of chapter 12. What does Paul say? He says to the Corinthian church, concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you guys to be stupid. That's basically what he says. (laughs) You guys are missing it here. The context of 1 Corinthians 12 and in fact, one of the entire reasons that Paul wrote the letter to the the first letter anyway to the Corinthian church was that they misunderstood and they misused spiritual gifts in the church. 
that took a lot of different forms. You can read all this for yourself, but I can give you some quick highlights. They started to believe that certain gifts were more important than other gifts. And the gifts that everybody was like, ooh, I want that gift, I've got to have that gift, were the miraculous sign gifts, particularly speaking in tongues. So in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 11 and 12, Paul's entire point here is like, guys, speaking in tongues is great, but guess what? It ain't as big a deal as you're making it out to be, okay? All of the spiritual gifts are important. All of them are necessary. You're not extra spiritual because you have that gift or less spiritual because you've never spoken in tongues or anything like that, okay? Um, his point here is to correct their misunderstanding and misuse of spiritual gifts. This is why um, Paul, when we got to the end of this passage, he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then he goes on to say, now let me show you what the higher gifts are. We get to 1 Corinthians 13, which we think of as the love passage, and it's the marriage section of the Bible. It has nothing to do with romantic love whatsoever. Paul is saying the greatest gift you could exercise in the local church is true love towards one another, unity among the people. That's better than speaking in tongues. It's better than having the gift of apostleship. It's better than being an administrator or a generous giver in the church. The best thing you could do, the biggest gift you could give to your brothers and sisters is to genuinely love them. So why he goes on to say in, in uh, chapter 13, if I speak with the voice of angels, but I have not love, I'm like a clanging cymbal. I might as well just be wah, 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 right? So um, he is writing this letter, this section of the letter, to correct their understanding of spiritual gifts. It's within the context of spiritual gifts that he talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, stuff like that, okay? Um, I also want you to notice that he lists the apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, all that, right alongside um, in the exact same list as stuff that appears on every single spiritual gifts test that you might ever take, like helps and administration and, you know, all of these different things that are like, yeah, those are clearly spiritual gifts. We don't think about apostle, evangelist, prophet, teacher as spiritual gifts, but that's exactly what Paul was talking about here, okay? Um, the last thing I'll say is this. If we um, look here, and uh, I forget which verse this is offhand, uh, verse 11. Um, in verse 11, the apostle Paul says this. He says, the spirit of Christ is the one who gives gifts as he wills, okay? The spirit gives gifts as he wills. It's the spirit who decides who gets what gift. I think this is really important, and, and he's going to reiterate this point again in a different passage, but I think this is really important because, okay, the church gets to decide who occupies the offices. The spirit gets to decide who exercises the gifts. Yes. You understand that? So, like, if the spirit gives a lady the gift of pastor-teacher, who are we to say, now you ain't got that gift, girl. Mm -hmm. um, if the Spirit enables someone to be an evangelist, then that's the Spirit. The Spirit apportions to each one individually as He wills. Now, that's not to say that God couldn't tell us this is the way in which the Holy Spirit will always apportion gifts. However, there is never a time in the New Testament, never a time in the New Testament, where there is even a hint that men get certain gifts and women can't have those gifts. Like the whole, again and again and again, you see the Holy Spirit giving gifts equally to men and women. 
They're exercising their gifts within the congregation among one another. Go read the rest of 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 and then get into 14. And you're going to see women were prophesying in the church with men present. They were praying out loud. And so they were exercising these gifts that the Holy Spirit had given them. So we've got to be really careful. If we're talking about spiritual gifts, then the Spirit is the one who gives the gifts. And if we say that a woman can't have those gifts, we are dictating to the Holy Spirit what he can and can't do. I don't want to I don't want to be in that position. I really really don't, okay? Now when we talk about the offices, we might have a different conversation. Okay? We'll get there in just a moment. Um, yes. Okay. So, uh, we could put it like this. How do you know if someone has the gift of prophecy? How do we know if someone is a prophet? Let's put it that way. That's it, right? That's it. They prophesy. If somebody believes they have the gift of prophecy and they are offering utterances that are in line with God's word and the things that they are saying are true and right, then who are, like, we should just assume that they have the gift of prophecy. If somebody is constantly telling everybody they know about Jesus, then we should just, you know what, you probably have the spiritual gift of evangelism. You are an evangelist at heart. Basically, somebody is that description or they have that gift if we see evidence of that gift in their life okay so when we're talking about pastor teacher which is a spiritual gift when we're talking about that what we need to look for is not an office it's not a gender because we're talking spiritual gifts we need to say is this person a shepherd and do they have an ability to teach if so they've got the gift of pastor teacher like, it's as simple as that. We don't have to overcomplicate this thing, okay? All right, um, we can do the same thing here with Ephesians chapter number four. Um, we're going to wrap this up pretty quick here. Ephesians chapter number four, verses seven uh, through 11 and 12. So again, uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, context here is he's writing about spiritual gifts. So the word that's used there, I've got it highlighted, grace. The word is charisma, okay? Charisma. That's where we get charismatic which in our time, of course, means somebody who just has the gift of making you like them. But in New Testament, <laughs> charisma is a grace gift that's given by the Spirit. This is like the spiritual gift word. It's charisma, grace. So it's translated grace here, but in other places it's translated as spiritual gift. Okay. So his context here in Ephesians 4 is still spiritual gifts. And it's in the context of spiritual gifts, he says... Again, the Spirit of Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and excuse me, shepherds and teachers for the equipping of the saints. So again, we see this is the same format, same words, same point that Paul is making in um, this passage that he did in the others. Okay. Now here's what I want to do for just a moment. Go back to the first page. Go back to the first page here, and I want you to consider. Paul's list, this is really the New Testament list, okay? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, overseer, and deacon. Okay. If we start with apostle, are there any records in the New Testament of a woman who is called an apostle? Now, whether that means she occupied some first century office or she was showing the fruit of the gift of apostleship, do we have an example of that? Yes. yes. We talked about her last week. Her name is Junia. And we read about her in Romans chapter number six, verse seven. Okay. Prophet, do we have examples, named examples of women in the New Testament? We could also throw in the Old Testament just for fun. 
who were called prophets. Again, whether they occupied some first century office that we don't have anymore, or they simply displayed the fruit of having this spiritual gift, do we know their names? Yeah, Anna, Luke 2. Um, we have Philip's four daughters in the book of Acts. There are others as well. Do we have women that are explicitly identified as evangelists in the New Testament? Yeah, we do. We've got the women at the tomb. We talked about them last week. They went and published, proclaimed the good news of Jesus' resurrection to the disciples, the male disciples, right? They were the first evangelists, all right? Uh, do we see female examples of pastor-teacher? Oh, this is a spicy one now. Like, do we see examples of pastor-teacher? And I think the answer is yes, very clearly we do when we go back to uh, Priscilla and Aquila, her husband. This is a pastor-teacher pair. Um, I don't even need to get into like, well, maybe her husband had this gift and she had this. It doesn't even matter, okay? The, we read last week how she cared enough about Apollos and his ministry to bring him aside and to more accurately explain to him the way of God. She was caring for him, making sure he was correctly educated so that he could go on and do his ministry. If that's not a pastor, I don't know what a pastor is. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like That's what I do every single week, essentially. So we have like named women in the New Testament who clearly have the gifts that are outlined here. Leadership gifts. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. So the question then becomes, uh, or the statement really should be, that even before we get into the conversation about whether or not a woman can occupy the office of elder, which is really where the debate happens, even if we get, before we get there, we should acknowledge that calling someone by the title pastor is an acknowledgement of a gift rather than giving them some office. Like, you can be a pastor and not have an office in the church. And by office, I don't mean like a little room that you have a desk in. I mean like some sort of formal status or position within the church because it's a gifting. That's why, like, I've never understood people who freak out about me calling Amber pastor because it's like, even if we don't get into the eldership yet, and we will, okay, but like even beyond that, what I'm saying is very clearly God has given her a gift of being a pastor because it's a spiritual gift. To me, that could not be any clearer, but because we've conflated the term pastor with elder overseer, we can't even use the term pastor in our churches today without people freaking out and, oh my gosh, you're liberal and you don't take the Bible seriously. And it's like, <laughs> guys, like with all due respect, I think we're the ones that are taking the Bible seriously here. Because like I can, we can draw very clear boundaries around this word. We can demonstrate it's a spiritual gift and that women exercised it in the New Testament and have been exercising it throughout church history. So um, yeah, I think that's what we're doing here. When we say uh, a woman is a pastor or anybody is a pastor for that matter, we are acknowledging a gift inside of them. So we could put it a little bit differently. Um, we could talk about it in terms of the elder office here for a minute. Because we said this is either a spiritual gift or it's a function of the office, okay? So what we might say is every elder in the church, which that's the office, okay? Every elder should have the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. Why? Because that's one of the functions of the office. First Timothy 3, Paul says that the elder has to be able to teach sound doctrine, okay? So don't hire a pastor that does not have the gift of teaching or pastor-teacher because they're not going to be qualified for it, okay? 
but there are people outside of the office that will have the gift, but won't have the title. They won't have the office itself. Another way that we could kind of frame it is like this. Um, okay, every surgeon, that's the office, has to have fine motor skills. Steady hands, baby. That's the gifting. But not everybody who has steady hands is going to be a surgeon. Does that make sense? This is exactly what we're talking about here. Every elder or overseer has to be able to teach, but not everybody that's able to teach is going to be an elder or overseer. We're talking about two different things. All right, cool. Um, so last thing, we're going to start to wind this down. I keep saying that. Um, <laughs> so let's consider the two offices that are listed in the New Testament church, deacon and elder overseer, okay? Do women ever occupy those roles? Meaning, if we can point to named examples of all of these other titles that individual women had, can we find those same things for the last two offices? And um, the answer for deacon is very easily yes. We know for certain that women occupied the office itself of deacon. We saw that last week with Phoebe in Romans 16. I showed you or I pointed you towards several um, resources from the first 200 years in the church's life, writings outside of the New Testament in which people acknowledge and acknowledged almost completely positively the, um, the existence of and the ministry of female deacons, okay? So that's already a yes. We can point to a specific lady who's named in the New Testament and lots of other stuff. Now, when we get to elder, it's a little more nuanced, okay? And it's more nuanced for a couple of different reasons. Um, the first is, and this is where like complementarians will jump in and they're like, ah, 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 ah. there is not a single woman in the New Testament that is specifically called an elder, overseer, or bishop. You can't point to one. And they're absolutely right. You can't point to a single one. Not one. For me, that forms what is probably the strongest argument that complementarians have to keep women from the senior pastor role. Because in all these other areas, I can just say, well, go talk to Priscilla. Phoebe wants to have a word with you. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's like I can point you to these. But when it comes to New Testament practice, there are no specific women that are named as elders in a church or overseers of any congregations, okay? But that doesn't mean that there is no, like, okay, well, that settles it. Women cannot be elders or anything like that. It's not quite as simple as that, okay? The first reason is that... Um, there are only two people, that's the blank there, there are only two men that are ever named as elders in the New Testament. And they identify themselves with the term. So the first one is the Apostle John. So if you go to 2 John, the letter of 2 John and the letter of 3 John, what you're going to find is it actually, this is, okay, this is kind of weird, you guys. Um, I don't know if you know this or not. So 1, 2, and 3 John we historically or traditionally believed they are written by John the Apostle, okay? Same guy that wrote the Gospel according to John and John, uh, I'm sorry, the revelation of Jesus Christ by the Apostle John, okay? Um, however, in those uh, what we call epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he actually doesn't identify himself as John. He just calls himself the elder. And there are some reasons that we identify it with John. A, church history has said, yeah, this was a letter. Everybody knew it was written by the Apostle John, also, the writing is grammatically very similar. He uses a lot of the same phrases, themes, motifs. And so we're like, yeah, it seems like the same guy probably wrote this. But it's just the elder, okay? So even when it comes to John the Apostle, 
we traditionally assume that that's written by him and he calls himself an elder, but we can't even be certain that it was him. Just traditionally, we think it probably was. The second person that calls or is specifically named as an elder is Peter. And in 1 Peter 5.1, he writes to the elders of the churches and he basically says, I implore you as a fellow elder. Okay, so he basically says, like, I'm one of you. I'm a church leader just like you are. So please do this and this and this and this and this. Okay, so there are two guys in the entire Bible that are called elders. There are zero guys in the entire Bible that are called pastors. So like, you see what I'm saying? Like, you, you think that the New Testament presents this really clear picture of how the church is and how it should be run and all that. You start digging in and you're like, Oh, it's a little skimpier than I thought it was, okay? So the point here is, yes, there are no examples in the New Testament of named female elders. But it's not like we have this long list of named male elders. We only have two, and both of them were apostles in the technical sense. They were the original 12 followers of Jesus. So we cannot ignore that. This is why I say, this is the best argument I can possibly find from complementarians when it comes to women not occupying the senior pastor or elder role, okay? Because there is no example. But first, we don't have this, um, we don't have this long list of males either. And then the second thing to keep in mind here is that there is a very well-known tradition in the early church outside of the New Testament of female elders, okay? There is tons and tons and tons of references to female elders, not just old women, which is one of the ways that the term can be interpreted, but also like women who hold the office of elder, overseer, or bishop, okay? Now, most of those references are negative, meaning whoever was writing saying like, man, that church over in Calgary, they have female pastors. They're writing because they don't like it, okay? There are some, the minority of references are positive. Like, this is wonderful. Women should be leading and they're doing a great job, okay? So the point here isn't whether or not it was positive or negative. It's that it was happening. It's clear it was happening because there was a debate in the church about whether it should be happening. Does that make sense? Women were being ordained, not just as deacons, not as prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors, as elders presbyteros in the church, okay? And so I've listed a few places there for you. You can kind of Google these. You can look them up on your own. You can read all about it yourself if you want to. Um, negatively, uh, in 360, the Synod of Laodicea talks about women, and they're like, oh, these churches are ordaining women. They shouldn't be doing that. Same thing in the Council of, Council of Nimes in 396 AD, Council of Carthage in 398, and the Canon of Ferendus, Ferendus, um, that's 597. So that's, you know, we're talking 6th century. That's getting pretty late. But still, we see for the first several hundred years of the church, there was clearly ordination of women to, fem to eldership. And then it's spoken of positively in two places that I could find. There are probably a few others. The first one I'll mention is the Testamentum Domini, which basically means the, test the Testament of our Lord in Latin. Um, that dates to around 400 AD. Again, it's kind of a church manual from this age. And uh, the point here is like, yep, we, if you're going to ordain women, this is the way you do it. That's kind of the, the, the process here, or, or the point there. Then the second one is the Acts of Philip, and that dates to around 375. And the Acts of Philip speak very positively about female elders leading in the local church. However, 
I want to be really clear and upfront with all this stuff. I don't, I don't want anybody to say like, oh, well, I didn't know that. You didn't tell us that. So the Acts of Philip is an apocryphal book, meaning it was written by somebody long after the life of Philip, who's a guy in the New Testament, right? And it, it purports to be Philip, but we know it's not because it doesn't use the same language. It gets some things wrong. And frankly, if you read the Acts of Philip, it's like bizarre. Um, it basically says if you want to be a Christian, you have to become a vegetarian. You have to become celibate. You have to walk away from your marriage. It's like all this stuff that's like, that's not what Jesus said. You know what I mean? So um, this is not like a, this is a heterodox text, meaning you shouldn't look at this and be like, oh, this is exactly what the majority of the early church believed. It's not. But it is another source that demonstrates that within the first few hundred years, it was pretty commonplace. It was always the minority, but it was pretty commonplace for women to be ordained both to the diaconate and also to the episcopate, to eldership. Let's talk about why it might be the minority for a second. Let's so so back in this time, I mean, man, even, even to the... Just, a few hundred years ago, mm-hmm. women couldn't read. Yeah, that's true. They, yeah, like, like in the first century, that like was very common. It was common. very yeah. uncommon mm-hmm. for a woman to be able to read. Yeah. Now, Heidi and David are leading um, the Chosen series uh, connect group. And if you watch the Chosen series, it's very obvious that there is a woman trying to teach another woman who wasn't given the opportunity to read. Mm-hmm. And that was so common. Yeah. You weren't brought up to be educated, to teach other people, to become a school teacher, whatever that might be. You were brought up to mm-hmm. cook and clean and give babies. Totally. So like that, it's just not common. And so the fact that we even have examples mm-hmm. is a miracle. Yeah. So it could be that um, it's not just that women were in the minority as leaders because the men and the church at large knew this was wrong and it was just a few rogue congregations. But literally, there weren't many women that could be qualified to do this. In fact, what we're going to discover in a couple of weeks, this is part of the problem that was going on at the church in Corinth. Women were learning. Finally, they're being taught and they're like, so what about this? And what about that verse? And they're like, and it's like disrupting the entire church. And so Paul's like, hey, if you guys want to learn, Go home, have a Bible study with your husband. He'll teach you the basics. Then you can come to church and you can participate at a level that's not disruptive, right? That's essentially what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14. And it, it bears back to what you're talking about, the educational status of most women. All right, we got to move on because we're going to be done in three minutes. I mean it. Um, I promise. So stop laughing so I can keep going. Um, all right. So uh, the second objection that comes up here, again, we're trying to answer the question, can women occupy the office of elder overseer? Um, the second objection that often comes up is that Paul's use of masculine language in 1 Timothy 3 requires male eldership. Masculine is the blank. What that means is if you go here to this passage, um, you, you notice that Paul uses he and him. He talks about a man. He talks about being a husband. He talks about being a father. This is all masculine language when we look at the requirements for elders and overseers. And so like, Paul uses masculine language. We should infer pretty clearly from that that the elders and overseers are supposed to be men because if they could be women, then he would have either used gender-neutral language or he would have also included female language that would have made room for women, okay? Again, that's a it's a strong argument. You can't ignore it. That is what's said, but I actually think it's a bit weaker than the first one. Um, so first... Um, If Paul's intent, and this is what we'll discover in a few weeks, this is eventually where we're going when we talk about 1 Timothy 2, Um, Paul's intent in silencing women at the church in Ephesus 
was to curtail or stop false teaching that had taken hold among the women in that city. Okay, For whatever reason, we're going to talk about some possibilities. Women had particularly bought into false teaching in the church. And so because of that, they were propagating false teaching. So Paul had to say, ladies, you don't know what you're talking about right now. You're wrong. That doesn't mean every lady is wrong. doesn't mean every lady is false teacher. It just means that these ladies were, okay? So if Paul's point here is to stop women from teaching and leading in ways that are contrary to the message of Jesus, then it really makes sense to me that he would focus on what it takes for men to step up and be in charge, the kind of men who are going to be able to bring this church back around to where it should be. You wouldn't expect him to go into a long list of rules about what women should or what type of women should be allowed to teach when he just got through telling them women should not be teaching in your church because they're a hot mess right now. Okay, so to me, this makes sense. But even beyond that, um, if we want to look at Paul's writings here and we say, okay, he uses masculine pronouns. He says he needs to be a, a husband of one wife. That's male, obviously. He needs to be a good daddy. That's obviously male. If we want to take that really strictly, then Paul's writing here, his qualifications also exclude any man that is not married. Because it says the qualification for an elder overseer in the church is they must be the husband of one wife. Well, if you're not the husband of a wife, then I guess you're not qualified, right? So if you're single, you couldn't be the pastor of a church. And there are unfortunately some churches that do have that um, kind of standard. But keep in mind, that would, have, that would have excluded Jesus, and it would have excluded the Apostle Paul himself. Because best we know, he was not married. He never made a mention of his wife, and he went off on mission trips every other week, so he probably wasn't a good husband, even if he wasn't, okay? <laughs> um, no, Paul was single. So Paul, the guy who founded the church, is not qualified to pastor the church. This doesn't make any sense, okay? Not only would it exclude single guys, like Paul and Jesus, it would exclude childless guys, like me. Because he says, you have to have children who behave. If we're taking this as like, this is the standard, and it is exact, and we need to read into every little detail we can, then it would say, you got to have children who obey. If you don't have children, then you're not qualified to meet the standard, which of course is ludicrous. And then finally, um, it would prevent any divorced men from ever entering the pastorate. This one is a little controversial. Some people believe no divorced men should ever be pastors. Um, I think Jesus made a couple, of, Jesus and Paul, both made a couple of very clear exceptions for divorce for Christians. And I'm not entirely convinced that those should necessarily preclude a man from the pastorate. Um, I think it deserves a closer look. It, it deserves a double take. Um, but yeah, like I don't think that it's reasonable to say that no divorced man under any circumstances whatsoever, or even a widowed man for that matter, because he doesn't have a wife anymore, would no longer qualify. So we can't read too much into Paul's masculine use, because again, if we start to carry it too far, suddenly almost nobody's qualified, okay? All right, last thing. Uh, I got one minute. Um, the final leadership term, okay, that's used here in the New Testament, um, and it deserves mention, we're going to circle back to it in a future discussion, is, and the last blank is priest, priest, hyrus. That's the word in Greek, hyrus. And it occurs 30 times, which is quite a lot in comparison to some of the other terms. And what's really um, worth noting here is that the word priest is applied in the New Testament equally to men and women. Okay, It's applied very uh, equitably between the two genders. Uh, you go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, and it, it, it is a, a sea of people 
praising the Lamb of God because he has made us a kingdom of priests, right? First Peter says, God has made you a, a royal priesthood, right? So again and again in the New Testament, this word priest is applied to both men and women. So this is another one. This one occupies a weird space. It's not a spiritual gift. Nobody has the spiritual gift of priesthood. Priests are mediators of the covenant. They are representatives of God to the rest of the earth. They speak on God's behalf. They hear from God directly. They go to God directly in prayer. They don't need someone in between them and God. They have direct access to God. We all have that, male and female, under the New Testament covenant. That's really clear. Nobody disputes that. What that leaves us with is that complementarians would say um, that a woman can be a priest, an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor teacher, and a deacon, but they're unqualified for the role of elder. That's strange to me because clearly in the New Testament, elder and overseer were an important role, but they weren't half as important as some of the other roles, gifts, and functions that were happening. So it seems strange to me that we would deny women roles today that they clearly had in New Testament times, and we would deny them roles that today have less authority and import than they did in the first century. It just doesn't seem to compute. Okay? To we me, haven't. Sorry. No, to it's me, okay because we're, we're out of time though, so, you know. I, <laughs> you talked the whole night. I don't know, I don't know what to do. To me, when I look at especially all of this, it's so obvious to me that Satan's greatest accomplishment was to convince churches that women don't belong in leadership. Because I could sit here and say, but why are there so many churches mm -hmm. who take this stance and take it strong? And it's frustrating. Why do we have to fight about this? It's not us fighting with other Christians. It's actually us fighting with Satan. That's truly my belief. And I know that there's a complementarian argument. You can share it if you want to. Yeah. But um, I, I just, I, it's so obvious to me. Because when we've been fighting this, when we've been feeling this, this um, you know, thing that we're hitting a wall against, mm -hmm. it's always in these times where God is doing these really big things that connect church or through us. Yeah. And like right at the beginning of COVID, a really big issue with women pastor using the term hit us pretty hard. Um, another one hit us when we were like really in the rut and like financially super low and like feeling a lot of pressure on us. Another one hit. And, and it's so obvious to me that Satan is using that. And I'll even go as far to say that when somebody comes at us now, I like, I like, I feel like I Get see this behind very, me, Satan. Yes. Because, because I'm, even if yeah. that person is a Christian, a leader, a pastor even, I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, how is Satan grabbing yeah. a hold of you and using you in this way? Yeah, I think, you know, um, I want us to be careful. And we talked about this week one. I want us to be careful that we don't demonize other people simply because they disagree. If this is genuinely a second order doctrine, then genuine Christians can disagree. We can be very passionate about this, but I don't want us to demonize them. With that being said, I do agree with you that one of the tactics of the enemy is to make this a divisive issue. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be a divisive issue, and it can be. So this is what the scripture says. Scripture says, mark a divisive person, 
Warn them once, warn them twice. After that, have nothing to do with them. Yeah. So, like, if there are people that want to argue about this stuff and they just won't, like, they're just not interested in the actual discussion and conversation, they just want to argue until you agree with them, mark them, warn them once, warn them twice, and then you've got more important stuff to do. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, we, I, don't, I, I don't sit around and debate this stuff. We're doing this group because I think it's helpful, but this is not what I sit around doing all the time. When people send me emails, like this guy that emailed me last week, I literally, I gave him a quick response. I said, hey, I don't appreciate the insinuations here, so let me do my best to help you understand where we're coming from. He came back and cursed me out and called me a lot of names and stuff like that. And I was like, hey, bro, last time I'm going to say this. I'm just not interested in this conversation. He came back with the same stuff again and blickety block. That's it. I don't talk to the guy anymore. Because um, this can be a divisive issue, but it shouldn't be. It doesn't need to be. Even if we disagree, it's okay. We're still brothers and sisters. And so the division, I think, is the, the work of the enemy. The division is the yes. problem that we've got to guard against.